And a hearty welcome to one and all. This is episode 60 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for joining me on a Wednesday evening, early evening, here in New York. If you're checking out episode 60 on the YouTube channel and haven't done so already, click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. Or if you're catching up with the podcast on the audio version, on Spotify, iTunes, and the other platforms and haven't done so already, and enjoy the content, Click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. So it is a cliche that, say, sometimes you shouldn't meet your heroes because they turn out to be somewhat less than what you hope. Now, unfortunately, this is going to, one of these is a little bit out there. Uh, My two heroes growing up, number one, Muhammad Ali, my single favorite historical figure ever. Um, somebody that I followed as a, a kid, I, he was already pretty much retired by the time I, I kind of came of age and was aware of these things. Um, but I, I read a lot about his career as a younger person, and I've, I've talked about him on previous podcasts. The other sports item and legend is a famous, long gone, unfortunately, didn't, wasn't very old when he died, professional bowler named Berlant, who I will still argue, and another hill I'll go down on, that regardless of who won the most professional titles, Walter Ray Williams Jr., uh, I believe that Earl Anthony was the greatest bowler who ever lived. The only opportunity that I theoretically had to meet Earl Anthony was at the 1980 uh, PB, I believe it was 1980. It was either 80 or 81. You know what, now that I'm thinking about it, it would have been 1981, it would have been spring. Uh, But Earl Anthony was bowling, as all the top bowlers were, at the uh, Long Island Open, uh, which is in Garden City, Garden City Bowl. And I, my mother took me to not the TV finals, which ABC used to always televise on a Saturday, the same ABC where Howard Cosell was one of the lead commentators, and that was Ali's buddy. So, like, Ali had a relationship with ABC for decades. Um, and Chris Schenkel, who occasionally broadcast boxing, he did a couple of Ali's fights was the main uh, broadcaster. He was the um, play-by-play, as much as you could have play-by-play in bowling. Uh, But we went the day before. We went to the, I guess they would call them prelims, where they were trying to figure out who was going to make the televised finals, the the stepladder finals, like top five. They don't do it exactly the same today. But I got to meet a lot of the stars of the day, like Mike Balby and Steve. And uh, George Pappas, and there were a number of other guys. Sam Zurich was up there, and Wayne Webb. Wayne Webb, nice guy. Uh, didn't get to meet Mark Roth, and did not, unfortunately, have a moment to be introduced to Earl Anthony. My mom knew a couple of people, and that's how I was able to kind of Steve Cook come over. Steve Cook's a big dude, um, and you know, and shake hands. And you know, Mike Albee was so nice. He may have been. He was just starting out his career, too. Mike Albee, fellow left-handed wizard like Earl Anthony. So I didn't, I didn't get to meet Earl Anthony, even though I was no more than 10 feet from him at various points, because like, I wanted to watch him bowl, and I feel like the, the guys bowled like eight or nine or 10 games while we were there. So we kind of followed Earl Anthony around as we were able to. Didn't get to meet him. The only time in my life that I was literally in the same room with Muhammad Ali is a famous 
historical event, otherwise known as WrestleMania 1. March, what was it, March 31st? I believe it was March 31st, 1985. Let me double check. It could have been March 30th. No, it was March 31st. My memory was correct. At Madison Square Garden. And I can claim, and I'll be telling the truth, I was one of the 19,121 people in attendance that day at Madison Square Garden for WrestleMania 1. And it had been promoted on the various TV channels of the day that um, showed what was called at the time World Wrestling Federation, it showed WWF events. Uh, the local Channel 9, WOR, that affiliate, um, had a, a Saturday morning show that was really shitty. It was, it was nothing but uh, heels facing jobbers and baby, you know, um, faces going against jobbers. The good guys versus jobbers, bad guys versus jobbers. There were rarely any, like, competitive matches. Similar to how um, the old NWA, you know, with Ric Flair at the same time frame, mid-80s, carrying on a Rolex, wearing, woo, kiss, stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, son of a gun. TBS aired those on Saturday evenings, and it was just mostly promotional stuff, promoting other shows, Starcade, whatever it would be. And in this instance, Hulk Hogan had been in WrestleMania three. And that gave him an enormous boost in terms of people knowing who he was. He ended up becoming WWF champion. He beat the Iron Sheik, you know, like all these great angles with U.S. versus Russia. Was Rocky IV really a coincidence? I don't think so. But WrestleMania won. The so-called main event was a tag team match between Hulk Hogan and another co-star from Rocky III, Mr. T, who was basically himself, like he wasn't playing Clubber Lang in, in the WrestleMania, like that wasn't part of the storyline. He was Mr. T, actor from Rocky III, and um, B.A. Baracus on the, the original A-Team TV show, a hit show from the 80s. And they were going against probably top five greatest characters ever in professional wrestling, and another guy who was absolute magic on the microphone, Rowdy Roddy Piper. And Piper was, whether he was hero or villain, face or heel, there was nobody like him. There was nobody like Hot Rod. He was just about the greatest ever to do what he did. He was so quick, he was funny, he was inappropriate, and he was a guy that you love to hate, hate till it was a little bit like how Steve Austin, they tried to turn heel and the fans just kept cheering him anyway. As, as absurd as Piper was, as many crazy stunts as he pulled, you know, getting Jimmy Snooker over the head with coconut, beating the crap out of Cindy Lauper's manager, it, like this crazy stuff. People like me were still cheering for So that was set to be the main event a tag team match, and you had the former Yankees manager, Billy Martin was like the timekeeper, and Liberace was at ringside, and there were a lot of other dignitaries, but the so-called special guest referee for that match was Muhammad Ali. And it was his job to keep order, because there were all of these matches, and again, we know that it's, it's choreographed. I saw the Iron Claw, I'm not you know, thinking that this is all 
everybody's beating the crap out of each other for real. But certainly a lot of the moves in those matches could result, as we saw, fortunately, Owen Hart, there is there is substantial risk, even if they're not, even if it's not UFC MMA. Let me let me put it like that. So I was excited for the event, but even more so when it turned out, oh my God, Ali's going to be there. Holy shit, this is going to be incredible. Now at that time, I thought maybe it was not choreographed, and that these guys really did hate each other's guts and. They really were fighting, and certain fights I could see were not real, where drop kicks missed the target, and the guy would go flying out of the ring, even though the boot didn't hit him. I, I was not that naive. But I geared myself up, and I was excited. I was finally going to be in the same room as Ali. I wasn't going to be that close. We had great seats. We, we were in the equivalent of, in football parlance, would be the 50-yard line, um, kind of in the green, what would, I believe would be the green section of, it's not that way anymore, but the old days at Madison Square Garden, people my age and older know what I'm talking about. But we had really good seats. We weren't that far from the ring. We had a perfect view, like we were almost directly centered to the center of the squared circle. And watching the event from my seats was incredible. Now, the fact that we got tickets in the first place, there was no internet in March of 1985. The only way to get tickets was call Ticketmaster, Ticketron, Teletron, like the early era of those that you're all familiar with. Everybody knows Ticketmaster. Um, or actually go to the Madison Square Garden box office. And the story was there were a ton of people who, and you see this even now, camped outside, and that's how they got their tickets. And this is something going back to, you know, going back decades, people waiting outside for World Series tickets. That's one thing that technology hasn't exactly changed, that there are certain events where they prioritize people who actually get online and wait. So my mother was a fan. My dad really thought it was all bullshit. He was never into it. He didn't really even like the theatricality because there are plenty of people that say, well, we know that it's quote-unquote fake. Although Roddy Piper and other wrestlers would say, don't call it fake. You want to say choreograph? Fine. These are tremendous athletes. I, I, I am making no judgment upon it. I love wrestling. I grew up watching it, and I have the utmost respect for the people. And I think about someone like Ric Flair, who was what was you know, considered technically proficient, that he and guys like Barry Windham in the 80s were having matches where they were basically flying at each other for an hour and they were having these house shows night after night where they were beating the shit out of each other. Yeah, okay, it was choreographed, but they were beating the shit out of each other for an hour and the matches kept ending in the time limit that neither guy scored a pinfall. And Flair and Wyndham were doing this night after night after night. And guys like Bruiser Brody, who was mentioned in the Iron Claw movie. So utmost respect for all of them course. In actual reality, we should not have been able to get tickets. Um, my mother called whatever, whether it was Ticketmaster, again, I was 11 years old, I don't remember the particulars. She wasn't able to get through. The ticket sold out almost immediately. So it didn't look like we were going to get to go. And as an 11-year-old boy who had never been in this kind of situation, my dad had tickets to the Yankee games to work. He used to go to, you know, two or three games a year in incredible season. Again, a privileged, pain-in-the-ass kid, that was me. So once I said, well, are we going to go to 
to WrestleMania. My mom said, yeah, I'm going to try to get tickets. It didn't occur to me that she might not be able to get tickets. So I was disappointed. But then there was talk of, hey, wait a minute, there's something called pay-per-view. Um, and there had been SpectraVision, other, like an early form of pay-per-view, that there was talk that they were going to simulcast it um, on, that you could watch it at home on your television. So when I read that, and that's the kind of thing my mom would have paid 40 bucks or whatever it was going to be. So I, I was a little bit sad, but I wasn't that upset. I said, okay, well, we're probably going to get an opportunity to see it. You know, my mother was getting excited. Maybe we'll have a party. We'll have friends over. It'll be great. So there was still excitement, even if we weren't going to go to WrestleMania. Now, I have a cousin who people who meet him and many people met him thought he was my uncle because he and my father looked like they could have been brothers. This is cousin, cousin Ira, great guy, one of the funniest people in the family for sure. Now, cousin Ira at the time worked in marketing and advertising, as did my aunt, my dad's sister, worked for um, Ali and Gargano, which was one of the firms loosely, well, not even loosely, it was one of the firms that inspired Mad Men. They came up with some of the, you know, the biggest ad campaigns of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. My mom called Cousin Ira on a, on a whim, like, or a wing and a prayer, if you prefer, um, explaining the situation. We weren't able to get tickets. It, do, you, do you know anybody? Do you think there's anything that you can do? Um, of course, we'll pay you back the tickets, whatever they cost. Ira made one phone call. I don't know who he knew or how he did it, but one phone call, and we got two tickets in these prime seats, as I said, these incredible seats, enabling us to actually go. So no party, but we went. And in actual reality, the card itself wasn't that great. Even though there were, you know, big championship matches, there was a tag team match, with the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov beating the U.S. Express, which were two wrestlers who would go on to greater glory, uh, Mike Rotunda and Barry Windham, the same Barry Windham I mentioned, that would later just have these, this amazing, incredible feud with Ric Flair, and then Barry Windham became one of the, one of the horsemen. Uh, and then there was a women's, women's match where uh, Wendy Richter regained the title from Leilani Kai. There was a, a whole storyline, again, some Lauper, and the movie The Goonies, where she was involved, and Captain Lou Albano, who was a wrestling manager. There, all of this stuff, this rock and wrestling connection, which part of the storyline, which was that Roddy Piper thought it was fucking stupid, disgraceful. Nowadays, you have people in some quarters, you know, like angry about the fact that Taylor Swift is on TV during the football playoffs. Well, Roddy Piper, 40 years ago, was enraged that somebody like, didn't they loud for any deliberately mispronounced her name. He did everything that nowadays would be like, oh my God, Piper's really going there. Yeah, Piper really went there. He did everything to piss people off. He was almost like a Andy Kaufman, Tony Clifton of his day. Piper didn't give a shit if you liked him or hated him. He was just going to do whatever the fuck he wanted and tell you what he thought. So the card itself wasn't great. And uh, there was a King Kong Bundy versus S.D. Jones. The match was over in eight, like supposedly eight seconds. Bundy hit him with an avalanche. Like Bundy was on his way up in the WWF and he ended up being the star, so to speak, of WrestleMania II, which was an even trickier promotion. WrestleMania II was held in three locations. I saw at Nassau Coliseum, that was the first one, and a quote-unquote boxing match between Mr. T and Roddy Piper. 
wasn't really a boxing match, folks, newsflash. But the card WrestleMania 1 was, was just okay. None of the matches were really that great. From a technical standpoint, there were people who were proficient, like Rick Steamboat versus Matt Bourne, which was one of the sort of preliminary matches. That was some actual wrestling where they were getting to show their skills within the context of what they were doing. Um, Matt Bourne would later become Doink, and he was somebody who was actually quite skilled. He was, he was a, a really solid practitioner in there for, for many, many years. And Steamboat, you know, many people would say that the best match where the, uh, the athletes sold the moves to where if somebody didn't know, they wouldn't know that it had been choreographed. WrestleMania three, Ricky Steamboat versus Macho Man Randy Savage. And, you know, Macho Man for all, oh, yeah. Look at this coffee, Elizabeth. Macho Man was incredible in the ring. Another guy, great on the microphone, but, and, and phenomenal athlete. You know, he had been a, a baseball player. He and his brother, his family name was Papa, Lanny Papa, leaping Lanny Papa. Lanny Papa was another great worker within the context of professional wrestling who was such a skilled athlete, made it look real. He was really doing the moves. I mean, you think about the, the, the level of, of ability to do a quote-unquote suplex, a belly-to-belly -belly suplex, the kind of thing that you see in UFC where, you know, they're doing it and the guy goes down and he's knocked unconscious. To do that, 300-pound man lifting up a 250-pound man and dropping him in a way where he's only pretending to be unconscious. He didn't actually get a blow to the head and he's fucked up. Like, that's, again, when you were a little kid, you're not thinking in those terms. It's something that only as I got older and as, you know, later era watching the later WrestleManias, um, and I mean like Hulk Hogan versus The Rock 20 years ago, like that later, where I was already late 20s, early 30s, it took on a new appreciation. So the actual card, not really that exciting. There wasn't anything that I remember. Bruno San Martino's son, David, they were trying to you know, put him over. He didn't have the, the charisma, he didn't have the just insane strength of his father. I mean, Bruno was a guy, I remember you know, Jesse Ventura was uh, the lead uh, color commentator on WrestleMania with his old buddy, Gorilla Monsoon, and they had a kind of a humorous, semi-antagonistic relationship where they were always threatening each other. Gorilla was long retired. But Jesse was, a, you know, a guy known for his body, hence Jesse the Body, a future actor with Arnold Schwarzenegger in two of his classics, uh, Predator and the Running Man, and then Governor of Minnesota. But Jesse took pride in the fact that not just was he known for his body as a much younger man, but strong. He was strong as fuck. When Jesse found out that Bruno San Martino, as a younger man, did 30 reps with 360 pounds on the bench press, he was legitimately flabbergasted. Like, just hearing that, and the fact that he, he kind of he believed it, the way that it was told to him, he had a new respect for Bruno San Martino. You know, he never really talked to him the same way. Uh, he was one of the people that always called Vince McMahon. He never called him Vince. Or, you know, that was a long time before Mr. McMahon. But the card was just ordinary. It wasn't anything memorable. And I have flashes of memories of S.D. Jones getting squashed by King Kong Bundy. I really don't remember that much else about the card. But I do remember the kind of craziness when, when we knew the main event was coming. It wasn't a title match, so the stakes weren't really that high. It was just, you know, Hogan and Mr. T versus Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful or as Piper famously would call him later, Mr. Blunderful. Um, and Cowboy Bob Orton, who had this, 
was this kind of weird-looking plastic cast, which he used to use to hit, hit people over the head. Bob Orton was outside the ring on the side of Piper and Orton. And when they introduced Ali, and Ali came to the ringside, the place went crazy. It really went nuts. Now, he had been retired for, uh, he hadn't fought in about a little over three years at that point. His last fight, unfortunately, was December of uh, 1981 against Trevor Burbick, uh, a heavyweight champion, the guy that Mike Tyson beat for the belt in 86, you know, about a year and a half after first WrestleMania. But it was unfortunately an open secret that Ali's physical and neurological condition had significantly deteriorated, even though he was, he was still young, he's 43. He was 43. And really the worst beating that he ever took in the ring was the third Frazier fight, which he ended up winning. You know, he lost to Holmes. Holmes hate to say he took it easy on him, but he kind of took it easy on him because he knew this guy can't throw anymore. He can't punch. So he was 43, and he still looked good. And again, Jesse Ventura, as a lifelong fan, and Ventura in recent years has talked about his kind of, uh, I don't know that they were necessarily friends, but his idolization of Ali, and uh, he's talked about him at length. Um, but Jesse really thought Ali looked to be in terrific shape. He was excited to see him odds. It's great to see the greatest Muhammad's at ringside. This is terrific. Like Jesse wasn't his normal troll 100% of the time back to heel. He seemed to really be getting into the spirit of fun of WrestleMania. So the match goes off, and there's a moment in the match where Bob Orton attempts to enter the ring, and Ali jumps into the ring because it's quicker, and he basically cuts Bob Orton off at the pass, and he throws a roundhouse right and misses Orton by a mile. And he's then in the ring, ready to swing at Orndorff or Piper, and he really got into it. He looked like he was, he looked serious, but you could tell he was having, he was having a great time. And he had, like the last, arguably his last really good fight. He should have already been retired. But his last really good fight, which you could look up on YouTube to see what I'm talking about, was at Madison Square Garden in September of 1977. So about seven and a half years prior to WrestleMania. He was champ, he was 35, and he fought Ernie Shavers, one of the hardest hitters. This is something that every boxing aficionado agrees on. Pound for pound, Ernie Shavers was one of the hardest punchers in the history of boxing. Not, not necessarily, the, you know, the best of fighters. He lost a lot of fights, but he was a guy who, when he hit you right, you were worried the person might, like, die. And he had landed, famously, a shot on Larry Holmes in a fight in 1979 that might be, it's without question, one of the greatest rises from a knockdown. You know, Ali getting up uh, against Frazier in the first fight, that's pretty much how Frazier sealed the decision. Also at Madison Square Garden, 14 years earlier. Uh, Ali getting up from Frazier's uh, moonshot left hook in the 15th round. Just jumped right up. Extraordinary. Holmes arguably got hit harder by Ernie Shavers. And Holmes got hit so hard, one of the announcers who's working with Cosell made a noise like, <laughs> like that. Like he couldn't believe what he was looking at. He hit him so hard, it's like this guy's life could be in danger. Ali's last great fight. He was already, shouldn't have been fighting. He was long past, forget his prime, because nobody stays at their prime indefinitely. But there are many great fighters who have longer near primes. Roberto Duran, I've argued, I would say the longest near prime of any great fighter. He was near prime for 15 plus years, which is absurd. 
that Duran was capable of beating anyone in about five different weight classes for close to two decades. That's how good Duran was, but how he was able to maintain a high level of skill. By the time Ali fought Shavers, he could still punch, he could still move, but he couldn't, he couldn't do anything like what he had done even a couple of years prior. Like the Ali of the, the Foreman fight in Zaire in 74, even the Ali of the Manila fight, he was a, a shell of even that past prime Ali. But he beat Shavers at the Garden in a fight where he absorbed tremendous punishment. He took some howitzer shots from Shavers and just wouldn't yield. And went out in the 15th round knowing he had to fight one. It was one of those absurd things that the networks did. There had been so many controversies in various fights. There's still controversy. It's boxing for crying out loud. They actually had the judges' scorecards. They were broadcasting it during the fight. So fans watching knew that, hey, look, Ali's winning the fight. So Ali was told, even though he took a, a pretty significant pounding in round 14, it was almost a 10-8 round. He really took, took it, and Ernie was giving it to him. Um, going after the 15th round, Ali had enough of a lead where the only way Shavers could win the fight was to stop him. Knock him out if such a thing was, you know, realistic. Again, Ali, to his health detriment, could take a shot probably better than any fighter who ever lived. Unless you want to say Triple G. Triple G was another iron chin, and there have been other guys, Ray Mercer. But it was known that you really were going to have to do something out of, out of box, out of pocket, extraordinary to knock this guy out, to have him be unconscious. Because Ali's talked about the times he was, he talked about the times that he was shaken to where he didn't know which end was up. But somehow, his arms kept moving, and his mouth kept moving. That was the magic of that guy. So he ended up going out in the 15th round against Shavers at Madison Square Garden and rallying in the 15th round. When all he had to do was stay away and tie Shavers up, he took the fight to Shavers. And if that fight had gone on another 15 seconds, he would have KO'd Ernie Shavers. The ref would have had to stop the fight. That was the kind of guy he was. He always wanted to go forward. So even in the context of being a professional wrestling referee, guest ref for one night, he was there giving it everything he had. Playing to the crowd, for sure, because he was on the side of the good guys, but giving it everything he had. And so I guess I was, I don't know, about eight, 900 feet, 1,000 feet away from him. Couldn't really see it. You knew it was him, but you couldn't really see it. Watching the video and seeing him mix it up you know, with the other guys certainly looked he didn't have the musculature, but he didn't look out of place. This wouldn't be somebody like me standing next to Paul Orndorff, where he got five inches taller, but the guy's twice my size. He wasn't out of place in the ring with, with those guys. He had a great time, and, you know, the match, of course, ended in controversy, and nothing really was settled. But despite the fact there was very little real wrestling, it was just what Gorilla Monsoon would call pandemonium. Wrestling fans know Gorilla Monsoon's favorite word. Everything was pandemonium. It was a Pier 6 brawl. It was pandemonium. Despite the fact that it was mostly gobbledygook, it was a great time. And when the match was over, we got our stuff together and we were leaving. Maybe there were other people who would have been a little disappointed that we didn't see more or that the card kind of had a lot of fillers, a lot of jobbers wrestling heels and jobbers wrestling face. Like... WrestleMania should not be that, and that's really the only time that they had prelims of that caliber where it was just, I mean, King Kong Bundy versus S.D. Jones. I loved S.D. Jones, but come on. That, that was, they just put that match there so Bundy could break the record for quickest pinfall. But it was an extraordinary experience. 
even though I didn't get to meet Muhammad Ali, you know, he got into the ring and he got out of there and he, he was great with fans who he met, you know, some VIP autograph signings and pictures that you again can look up. And he took pictures with Hogan and everybody. And um, many of them talked about the experience and how terrific it was. And yeah, it is unfortunate from a sort of broader perspective that he did not retire earlier from boxing. And it's the lure of the sport, the lure of glory, and the fact that so many of these guys, and Mike Tyson's talked about this, loved all the mentality, the warrior mentality that you want to go out on your shield. You know, what I would say is the boxer who retired, the two, Lennox Lewis, Marvin Hagler, may he rest in peace, were two guys who retired exactly the right time. Hagler lost a disputed decision to Ray Leonard. Great fight, you know, another one you can look up. People are still arguing, it was 12 rounds, and I mean, it, it's impossible to score. Because I know people have said Hagler dominated, Ray just threw little pity pad combinations. What the fuck are you talking about? Ray won eight or nine rounds. But Hagler had, had enough. He survived the wars with, you know, guys like Minter and Antifermo, and, and of course the Hearns fight, greatest fight. The only thing, the only heavyweight, excuse me, middleweight championship fight, it was like a Rocky, <laughs> it was a fight out of a Rocky film. But, Ali had his day as a guest referee, and even though I didn't get to meet him, at least I can say I was one of the 19,121 people at WrestleMania at Madison Square Garden on that incredible day, March 31st, 1985. And I can always say, at least I was in the same room as my all-time number one favorite historical figure, Muhammad Ali. And with that, We've reached the end of episode 60 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. If you're checking this out on the YouTube channel, don't forget to click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. I'll be back with episode 61.